First Timothy. Go ahead and open your Bibles to First Timothy, chapter one. So last week we learned that uh, Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus to stop certain men, it says, from false teaching. We saw how they were teaching a different gospel. They were all hung up on myths and endless genealogies and mere speculations and arguments and disputes. We also saw that they were teaching a form of legalism from the Old Testament. Paul says that they, I'll paraphrase, they fancied themselves as teachers of the law, but they had no clue what they were talking about. And based on the evidence from the the context, it suggests that they were Judaizers, meaning that they were individuals who believed that in order to be saved, you had to obey certain aspects of the Old Testament law. Probably things like circumcision and other things. And so Paul obviously had a problem with that. It was causing dissension in the church. And we find out that elsewhere it was causing people to abandon their faith, to be led astray. And as I said, these things led to speculation and meaningless discussions, fruitless discussions. They did nothing to further God's redemptive plan, Paul says. They did nothing to further his administration, God's redemptive plan. So in contrast to that, Paul says that his teaching and Timothy's teaching was designed to ultimately encourage a number of things, including sincere faith and pure hearts and consciences. He says it was according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he had been entrusted. And so we see that Paul left Timothy there primarily to counteract this false teaching that was taking place. What we're going to see today is that Paul actually countered this by giving an example from his own life. He's going to talk about his own salvation today. I'm going to break it down into primarily two sections, maybe a third. But uh, as we look at this text today, we're going to see that Paul's life and ministry were a result of God's mercy and grace, not his own works. So Paul's life and ministry were a result of God's mercy and grace, not his own works. That's the first, well, that's verses 11 through 14. Paul's then going to declare that his life and ministry were an example of the patience of Jesus Christ. That's found in verses 15 and 16. And then finally, Paul's going to end with this, what we're going to call a doxology, praise for Jesus Christ in verse 17. So let's go ahead and dive into this day. Paul declared his life and his ministry a result of God's mercy and grace. He begins by expressing his gratitude for Jesus for strengthening him in the ministry of the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verses 1, or I'm sorry, verse 11. Get in here, First Timothy chapter 1. He says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I have been entrusted, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. So he starts off with this thanksgiving. Paul was grateful for Jesus Christ providing the strength that he needed to carry out his ministry. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9 with me briefly here. We learned something about the Apostle Paul very early on in his ministry. And we see this strengthening spelled out by Luke in Acts chapter 9. We jump down into verse, we'll start with verse verse 19. For several days he, he, meaning Paul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. 
all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by providing that this Jesus is the Christ. This idea here of being strengthened is the idea that Paul became stronger and stronger, more confident and more bold in his ministry of sharing the gospel and speaking out in the synagogues. Paul actually elsewhere thanks God for doing this. If you turn to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Oops, should probably. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, or not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to get along in, prosper, in prosperity. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, present tense. We often hear that claimed for, I think Dustin and I haven't talked about this not too long ago. It's a memory verse for a lot of folks. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the context here is Paul saying, I can be hungry, or I can be fed, I can be strong, I can be weak. I can do all those things because Christ strengthens me. And so he began that by saying he rejoices because of that. I want you to turn to one more passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He's talking here at the end of his life. He's talking about the defense that he had to give before the Roman authorities. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me, and here it is again, and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The one thing we see through all three of these passages, and including what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, was that the Lord strengthened him specifically as it related to his life in Christ and his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. Now, the grammar of what Paul, the grammar in the text here, implies that this was a continual thing. When you get into Greek tenses, um, they're not so much about time, past, present, future. They're more about the type of action. And so when you see a present tense, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's taking place in the present. It means that it's ongoing, that it's continual. And that's what Paul does here. So another way that we might read this is that I continually thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. It was something that was on the heart and mind of Paul on a regular basis. I believe it was a staple of his ministry, always remembering that what he did was only because Jesus Christ was able to strengthen him. Paul makes an interesting statement here, claiming that the reason the Lord strengthened him is because he considered him faithful. Go back to verse 11 there. Or, I'm sorry, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me 
And he tells us why. Because he considered me faithful. Now that's kind of interesting. The one thing that we have to keep in mind here is the context. Paul's not saying here that the Lord saved him because he was faithful. It's not at all about that. He says that he strengthened him because he found him faithful. So it's not about being worthy enough for salvation. The Lord gave him the strength that he needed to do what the Lord called him to do. Something we have to keep in mind when the Lord calls us to do something, he gives us the strength to do it. Gives us the gifting, the abilities to do it. We don't have to do it on our own strength. We don't have to do it all on our own. And Paul makes that clear here. That the Lord strengthened it because of his faithfulness. Now, there's a bit of a chicken and egg here, if you will. Um, Jesus knew, I believe, that Paul would be a faithful servant. I think when Jesus Christ chose Paul, he knew that Paul was going to be a faithful servant. He's in heaven. He's omniscient at this point. He would have known that. But at the same token, Paul remained faithful to the Lord, and as a result of that, the Lord continued to strengthen him. And so it's a bit of a chicken and an egg. Which came first, Paul's faithfulness? Or I don't know that we can define that specifically, except to say that the Lord knew. In fact, he told Paul from day one, you're going to be my chosen instrument. He already told him what he was going to do. He was going to carry the gospel to Gentiles and to Jews. He told him beforehand he was going to suffer, which obviously means he's going to need strength to do what he's able, or what he would be able to do. And so the Lord strengthened him because he was faithful. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18, tells us about about Paul's calling. We'll come back here to Acts chapter 26 in a little bit. Verse 14, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. He said, Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to to appoint you a minister and as a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles and to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Can you imagine what Paul must have been thinking at that moment? Paul was pretty bold. He was pretty, pretty arrogant individually. He went from city to city persecuting Christians. He had a long resume, if you will, and qualifications to be able to do that. He thought he was doing the Lord's work. He had all of the Sanhedrin behind him, the leaders, the Pharisees, and all of them were all behind Saul doing what he was doing. And all of a sudden now Jesus interrupts his life and says... We're going to change things up a bit here. You're now going to preach the very Jesus that you condemned and persecuted. You are now going to preach that to the very people you were trying to save in some respects because he was trying to protect people from this gospel. And now he's got to go proclaim the gospel to those same people. Imagine what Paul must have thought. Do you think he would have thought, yeah, I'm up for it? Probably not. I would imagine there was a certain amount of trepidation of sorts. And I believe that's why we're told immediately that he was strengthened at the very beginning of his ministry as he went out and he began to preach boldly. The Lord began to strengthen him to enable him to do that. And Paul was grateful for that. 
I think part of the reason Paul was grateful is because he knew that his call to ministry was something he did not deserve. That's the thing that Paul does next. If you get into verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 13. My number's all screwed up this morning. Notice he says in the very end of verse 12, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a prosecutor or a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Those belong together. I don't like these chapter or these, these verse markings here because really putting me into service goes with verse 13. But when you see those verse numbers, sometimes you break them apart. But we should read it as putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. There are all kinds of things Paul mentions here. But the Lord put him in the ministry even though those things were true of him. He says he was a blasphemer. That's somebody who speaks evil or speaks wrongly about God. We always think of blasphemy as using the Lord's name in vain, which is part of it. But it's whenever you say something that is untrue about God or about His Word. That's blaspheming the Lord. And Paul was doing that. He was condemning Christ, condemning believers. He says that he was a persecutor. We know what that was. He went from city to city persecuting people, killing Christians, having them put to death, I should say. He says he was a violent aggressor, which describes somebody who thinks they're superior to others and then mistreats them with violence. There's a lot packed into that word. Luke describes Paul's former life this way. Ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, delivering them into prison. He goes on to say that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's Luke's description from Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9. He was a blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. Now we don't have to just take Luke's word for it. We don't even have to take just Paul's word for it here because he describes a little bit later, I'm sorry, earlier to King Agrippa exactly what he was like. Turn to Acts chapter 26 again. Acts chapter 26. Starting in verse 9. So then, again he's testifying before King Agrippa here. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Meaning Paul condemned them to death. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. It wasn't enough that Paul just arrested these people and threw them into prison. He wanted them to deny their faith in Christ. There was a certain satisfaction in doing that. Verse 12, While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority of the commissions of the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. He goes on and describes then his coming to Christ at that point. But look at that description that Paul uses of himself. He was exactly what he says. Somebody who blasphemed, somebody who persecuted. He was violently, aggressively pursuing saints, trying to get them to blaspheme, trying to put them into prison, and even voting to have some of them put to death. Galatians chapter 13, Paul says this, For you have heard of my former manner of life, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, 
and tried to destroy it. That was Paul's mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Somebody wants to get a hold of me. <laughs> I'm going to put that on mute. First Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start at verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so we believe, or you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, so your faith is in vain. Also, Paul goes on there to describe the resurrection. But Paul's primary point in that passage is that of all the apostles, he was one that was least fit to be an apostle because he persecuted Christians, persecuted Christ, tried to destroy the church. And yet, Paul says, in spite of all that, in spite of who he was, in spite of what he did, look at what he, what he says here in verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor, yet, I love that word, yet, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So in spite of all that, Paul received grace and mercy. Those two kind of go hand in hand. They complement one another. We've talked about this before. Mercy is not receiving something you deserve. You deserve punishment. You don't receive it. That's mercy. When we were raising the kids, and it would come time to discipline them, there were times where we would look at them and say, you know what? We're going to exercise mercy today. We're not going to spank you, or we're not going to do A, B, or C. Because today we're going to exercise mercy, hoping that you learn something about the way God works, but also hoping that that will do what Paul says in Romans, the kindness of God drives us to repentance. And so there were times where we would tell the kids, you're not getting what you deserve today. But don't think that you won't get what you deserve later. We're just using this as a teaching tool. And so we would extend mercy to them. Paul is not saying here that he, did, that he deserved God's mercy or that he deserved God's grace. It was something that was extended to him. One of the interesting things here is Paul says that he received mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief, which is kind of interesting. You know, we, we oftentimes hear say, you know, every sin is sin. Every sin is equal in the eyes of God. But that's not really biblical, folks. Now, any one sin is enough to condemn us to hell. So in that respect, it might be true. But the Old Testament made provision for unintentional versus intentional sins. There was always a penalty, but unintentional sins were treated differently than intentional sins. And even Jesus did that. If you think about the way that he treated the Pharisees versus the way that he treated the people. The Pharisees knew better. And he dealt with their arrogance and their pride and their refusals to listen 
and to repent differently than he did those that were sinning in ignorance. And so Paul says here, he extended this mercy to me because I was doing it in ignorance, which is an interesting statement because Paul had plenty of head knowledge, didn't he? He knew the law. He knew the Old Testament. He should have been able to figure it out. But nonetheless, he had his eyes closed, his heart closed, and so he was really thinking he was doing Jesus, or not Jesus, but God a favor by persecuting the church, stomping out this blasphemer Jesus, this one who claimed to be God. And it was all done in ignorance. In some respects, you could say he didn't know better. The compliment to that mercy is grace. So where mercy is not receiving something you deserve, grace is receiving something you don't deserve. Again, they kind of go hand in hand. So when it comes to God's grace, it means that we receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, something we obviously don't deserve because of our sins. And that is certainly true of Paul here. Paul did not deserve to be saved. But even more than that, he didn't deserve to be, as he says here, put into service. God could have saved him through Jesus and left it at that. I'm sure Paul would have been grateful for that. But Paul is praising him, not just for saving him, but for putting him into service. Making him a minister who would go out and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that the reason that happened is the Lord extended both mercy and grace. Now, sometimes we we forget that grace is really a way to speak about a gift. When we think about the charismatic gifts from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's what the word, it's a gift. It's another, another translation or rendering of that word. And so in many respects, Paul is looking at his ministry here as a gift, an act of grace that the Lord extended to him even though he didn't deserve it. And notice how he, how he qualifies this or how he, how he kind of explains this. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord. Why was the grace of Jesus able to do what he did for Paul? Because the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. That is a great phrase. The Lord's grace was more than abundant. It wasn't just abundant, it was more than abundant to not only save Paul, but to extend to Paul the ministry that he gave to Paul in spite of who he had been, in spite of what he had done kind of gives you an idea of the depth of the Lord's grace. If he can save a man like Paul, and if he can put him into ministry, what can he not do? So you have these two compliments here, grace and mercy, that Paul is saying are responsible for not just his faith in Christ, but the ministry that the Lord gave to him. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says something very similar. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all that much more. And that was certainly true of Paul's life. You could sort of say it this way, whether it's theologically accurate or not. Paul needed a lot more grace than some people because of his past and who he was. I've known people who came to Christ who really weren't all that bad. And what I mean by that is, from a worldly perspective, you know, they were good people. You know, they were honest. They're still sinners. But you look at them and you compare them and go, they're pretty good people. And they came to Christ. And then you see some of those people. So you're like, wow, the Lord saved him. (laughs) Because by earthly standards or human standards, they were pretty bad. Uh, 
Tim Hawkins does this routine about, about the testimony, wishing he could have a better testimony. I wish I had been a drug dealer, you know. I wish I had been this. Because then I'd have a great testimony, you know. There are some like that that have a great testimony for what God had done. And there are others that are sort of like, you know, yeah, I was a sinner. And you go, really? You? Paul needed a lot of grace. And the Lord's grace was much more abundant, he says. Which again matches what he says in Romans 5.20. Sin increased, grace abounded that much more. What Paul was sharing with Timothy here was that his life and his ministry were the result of God's mercy and grace. Not obedience to the Old Testament law. And that's what Paul is trying to counter here. These teachers had come in and had tried to, tried to get them to adopt Old Testament ritual and practices and adding that to their faith to ensure that they were saved. And Paul's saying, no. Remember last week he went through this little discussion of the law and how the law wasn't made for the righteous. It's not made for us. It was made for the unrighteous. It was like when you deal with your children and you set rules and laws in the house, don't do this. You know, I don't have to tell Katie and Kimberly anymore, don't touch a hot stove. Why? They know now, they understand. But when they were young, we had to put up those, we still have to do that with the dog, we had to put up gates around the house, <laughs> you know? And so Paul explained that the law was not given for the righteous, it was given for the unrighteous to lead them to Christ, a tutor to lead them to Christ. And so Paul was trying to counter that last week with that theological argument. This week he's arguing against that based on his personal experience and how Jesus Christ saved him. In essence, he's saying, look at me. I was a law biter. You know my history, you know my past, you know what I did. But that didn't save me. What saved me was Jesus Christ's grace and mercy to me. It wasn't of my own doing. In fact, it was in spite of what I did. What an amazing testimony. And so Paul uses his own life here to say, just look at me. Was it the law that saved me? I didn't deserve saving. Look at who I was. But yet, look at what Jesus Christ did. His grace and his mercy were more than abundant. And he saved me in spite of who I was. So what's our takeaway with this? How often do you think about that in your own life? You know, I've been saved now. I think one of the kids asked me that day, how long have you been saved? And I got saved in 84. Allegedly. <laughs> Thanks, Dustin. <clears throat> so it's been a long time, 30 plus years. And I'll admit that the further I get away from who I was, the less I think about it. It's hard to imagine why I did the things that I used to do. I mean, I still remember them, but it's not me now. It was then. And the further I get away from that, the harder it is to imagine those things. And so sometimes because of that, I don't always remember the depth of my depravity when I was unsaved. Because I think of myself now who I am. And because of that, sometimes I can get a little confident. 
Maybe we might say a little arrogant or bold, especially when I look at other people and I see their behavior and I think, how in the world, how dare they? And it gets very easy to now judge them because I forget what I was like. Anybody else struggle with that? You know, my kids' case, they were saved very, very young. I think it'll be even more difficult. And I've had conversations with both of them about that. I lived for the first 18 years of my life unsaved. At least I've got a benchmark. I can go, yeah, I used to do that. Do you ever wonder what your life would be like today without Christ? Seriously. I got a pretty good idea where mine would have been had it not been for the grace and mercy. In fact, one of the things I do remember is that even though I had been begging, I, I knew enough to cry out to God for help because I was raised in a Catholic home. But I wanted nothing with a personal relationship. There was a guy on my floor who led me to Christ who for six months did not relent trying to share the gospel with me. And I remember times where I told him outright, almost in anger, don't talk to me about that. And it was in the end when I finally went to him and said, okay, tell me about that. I know where I'd be today had it not been for the grace and the mercy that were more than abundant to get over that arrogance for at least six months of God dangling the meat in front of me and saying, here it is, take a bite, and me going, I don't want that. And yet, his grace was more than abundant to overcome that. Do you generally believe that who you are today has nothing to do with your own ability and works, but purely because of God's mercy and grace? It's arrogant to think otherwise. That doesn't mean you didn't make a decision to follow Christ. But the fact that your eyes were opened is only because of his mercy and grace. And that's the testimony of Paul. That is the greatest witness that is not by our works, but because of God's grace and mercy. He did it for his own glory. It includes us. We benefit as a result. But the Lord did it to express his grace and mercy. That's why the Gospels laid out like it is. God didn't want us taking credit for anything. He wanted the credit for saving us because we couldn't save ourselves. And so Paul, as he writes to Timothy, is reminding him, Timothy, it's not by works of the law. It's purely by God's grace and mercy. Look at me. Look at what I did to the church. And yet God reached down and saved me because of his grace and his mercy and even put me into service. And Paul says that he thanked God for that continually. What an amazing testimony. So Paul's ministry and his life were a result of God's grace and mercy. Plain and simple. The second point that Paul actually makes is that his life and ministry were now an example of the patience of Jesus Christ. And we can see already why the Lord had to be patient with Paul. Look at verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement. Paul likes to use this. We don't know what that means. There are a number of places where Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement. He even says that when it comes to uh, elders a little bit later, verse three or ver, uh, verse one of chapter three. It is a trustworthy statement. So Paul had a list of things in his head, <laughs> whether these were idioms of the time or things that Paul had said else other place, We don't know for sure. But he starts off by saying it's a trustworthy statement and it's deserving of full acceptance. And here it is. Here's the statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the statement. 
That is why Jesus Christ came into this world. To save sinners. That was his purpose. That was his mission. That is the heart and the soul of the gospel. He didn't come to build a better earth. He didn't come for social justice reasons per se. He didn't come to make sure nobody has any disease or nobody ever struggles or has a hard day. He didn't necessarily come for our spirit or for our mental well-being or physical. Those are all benefits, and I'm not saying that God never does those things, but the, that's not the reason Jesus came. Jesus came because we were sinners and we needed to be saved. That's at the that's at the top. Everything else are sometimes benefits that God does for us as his people. Yes, he does heal us. Yes, he does help us mentally and emotionally. Yes, he does take care of us and provide for our needs. But it all begins at one place. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So Paul says that's a trustworthy statement. Jesus said of himself, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. It's Matthew 8, verse 11. John 3.17, we read, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, just like Paul, Christ died for us. Paul recognized the importance of this statement because he considered himself, he says, the foremost of all sinners. Look at verse 15 again. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I am foremost of all. Some of your translations may say that he was the worst of all sinners. I don't believe that's a very good translation. Foremost is is not describing Paul being the worst of sinners. Paul isn't saying, I was the worst of the worst of the worst. What he was saying is, I was the foremost. And what that means is the most prominent, probably the most well-known and so what Paul is basically doing here is he's saying out of, out of all these people, I, I was known as the sinner. I was foremost. My name would come up on that list if the church says, who pers-? they would know. And so Paul, again, is not saying he's the worst of all sinners. Everybody's a sinner. We all, we all get it. But Paul is saying, I was foremost. I was well known. It was out there. It was documented. I was a prominent sinner. He was a blasphemer, he said, and a persecutor, violent aggressor. All those things were known about Paul. And so he was foremost of all a sinner. Maybe the most prominent, well-known, if you will. In fact, the Jews hated him. Persecuted him from city to city. So he was foremost. They knew him. Yet, verse 16, Paul writes, Yet, there's that word again, Yet, for this reason, I found mercy So that in me as the foremost, and you'd add sinner there, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) Paul says that Jesus Christ saved him with his baggage and his history, who he was, what was known of him, to serve as an example of his patience to anybody that would come to him for salvation. Sometimes, you, you know, you, you think, why doesn't God just wipe out his enemies? Why didn't 
Jesus, when he met him on that road to Damascus, say, Hey, Paul, the dude you've been persecuting, it's me. You've got about ten seconds, and I'm going to snuff you out. Why didn't he just wipe him out? Could have. Would have saved the church a lot of hassle. Might have even saved some lives, right? But instead, Jesus chose to save him to be an example of his patience. It's a teaching tool. Peter wrote that during the the, um, hundred years that Noah constructed the ark, says that God was waiting patiently for people to repent. Do you ever wonder why? I mean, it didn't just take him a hundred years to build that ark. I mean... I think, you know, when you get into, you know, answers in Genesis and some of the other ministries, creation ministries that deal with things like the flood and why it took a hundred years. I don't believe it took Noah that long to build the ark just because it was him and a couple of his sons. They believe it was probably engineered. He probably hired people and they evolved. The time was more about the Lord's patience, waiting for people to repent. In fact, I was telling the girls this week, I don't, you know, I'm not much of an art person. But I've got certain pictures over the years that have moved me. One of them I have at home. And I'm not a big painting of Jesus kind of person. You know, I'm like, that's not Jesus. But I've got this picture of, it's a picture of Jerusalem. And Jesus up on the mountain. And you just see the side of his face, but he's looking down at Jerusalem. And I love that picture because it just reminds me of his love for Jerusalem. And when Christ went up on the mountains and wept over Jerusalem. So every once in a while I see I thought, man, you know what I would love a picture of? I would love, and I don't know that I've ever seen one. A picture of Noah getting in the ark, looking back over his shoulder with a tear in his eye, realizing what is about to happen. Because I have to imagine that Noah, after a hundred years, when he walked up that plank and he went to close, and then the Lord closed up the door behind him, I can't imagine that his emotions were anything other than those poor souls. Those poor people. We're told that he was a preacher of righteousness, which meant that he spoke about the coming condemnation and the salvation that would come through God, but only if they would listen. So if any of you can paint, can you paint me a picture like that someday? I like the photorealistic kind of stuff, you know. Um, even now, Peter says that the reason why the Lord is slow about his coming now is not because he's slow about his coming, but doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to faith in Christ. That's why he's waiting now. That's why it kind of breaks my heart when I hear people say, Jesus has got to come back now. It's gotten so bad and it's just bring it on now. And I'm like, but when he comes back, these people have no hope. So the longer Jesus Christ delays, <laughs> the more hope there is. Can we not suffer a little bit longer, folks, for the sake of Jesus' patience and hoping that more people will come to Christ? Instead of, Come back and smite them, Lord. Later in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Second Peter, Peter says that we should consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. The patience of the Lord as salvation. Paul even wrote in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness, His forbearance and patience that He grants, hoping that that kindness and patience and forbearance will lead people to repentance. That's the Lord's hope. And so... Paul certainly recognized what the Lord had done with him and the patience that the Lord had to extend to him. And so Paul says that, Peter, or Timothy, my life, the Lord saved me and put me into ministry that I might serve as an example of his patience. He was long-suffering with me, 
And that now is an example for all those who might come to faith in Christ. So what's our takeaway with that? Do you ever think about your own life and how it might serve as an example of God's patience? I do. I've been saved for 30 plus years and I still don't get it sometimes. The Lord is extremely patient with me. Maybe that's an example to others because if he can be patient with me, maybe he can be patient with others. Now the question is whether or not I extend that to other people. I think I've shared this before. You know, I think sometimes, you know, we walk this fine line. I think it's important for us to speak the truth. So when we see things in culture and society that don't align with God's word and God's character, I think it's important that we speak up. I think that's why it's important that Christians be involved with politics and other things. Now, if we do that because we think that we're going to somehow fix this world and bring about you know, some godly kingdom here, we're mistaken, that isn't going to happen. We speak the truth because people need to know the truth. Much like the law in the Old Testament. It's a tutor. leads people to Christ. When you, when you tell them what's wrong, it helps them understand their own sin, and so I think we need to speak up. But I think sometimes maybe on that public forum or that public stage, we're more known for what we're against and what we oppose than the hope that we have within us. I have a tendency to judge those that don't know Christ because of their behavior and I forget sometimes that I was there too and that maybe I should extend a little bit of patience. Doesn't mean I shouldn't say what I say. Doesn't mean I shouldn't speak up. I've got a phrase that I use with the kids sometimes and maybe it's not a very gracious phrase but people are idiots. (laughs) And we should expect them to act like idiots. Is that not true? They don't know any better. When a child does something that they don't know they shouldn't do, you have to extend, go, they don't know any better. You're gracious with them. You're patient with them. It's when they know better that you're not. And while this world in many respects should know better, there's an awful lot of people that don't know better because they don't know Christ. And so I would hope and pray that maybe what I present to people is that, not that I'm arrogant and proud, but that I recognize that God was patient with me and maybe they'll see that I'm patient with them especially when they're at least willing to listen give them time but again I think sometimes maybe maybe we forget that and again it doesn't mean we don't speak up and public forums are sometimes different you know public officials should be held to account publicly I believe that so it doesn't mean we don't speak up but we should do so at least in a way that tries to express the gospel and express that Jesus Christ was patient with us. And maybe we should have a little bit of patience too. So I wonder if we project that. When people look at your life, when they look at my life, will they ultimately say, hmm, I know what he or she was like. And if Jesus was patient with them and saved them, maybe he could be patient and save me. Isn't that what we ultimately want? The last thing that Paul does here, and we'll end with this, is much like we'd expect him to do, he rejoices in this and in some respects bursts into praise. Got this one line statement in verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a bursting forth with praise. So as Paul reflects on these two things, that his life and his ministry were a result of God's mercy and grace when he didn't deserve it, and that 
His life was now an example of the patience of the Lord to anyone who he might have the privilege of leading to Christ by faith in Christ. Paul says, honor, glory, and forever. Amen.